Are you ready? So last night we raised the question, which is, how does a person respond to either national or individual tragedy? And we have to see to what degree that these two areas overlap or don't overlap. What does a Jew do when he's stricken by a crisis? What does a Jew do when he finds himself the object in the winds of history? Simply, a national tragedy takes place. Whether you're righteous or whether you're not righteous, you are caught up, swept up in this national crisis. As now we have pointed out that there had been seven major crises that had affected the Jewish people. We had counted, first of all, we had seen the Horban Yuchevatim, two was Horban Bayit Ishon, three was Horban Bayit Sheni, then four was <coughs> the Hadrianic persecutions and the, after the Bar Kokhba revolt, 132 to 135, five was Gerusha Farad, six was the pogroms, and seven was the Holocaust. And how do we define a national crisis or a tragedy when there is geographic dislocation, number one. Number two, massive death and destruction. Number three, when there's a change in the self-perception of the Jew himself. When he no longer sees himself as God's chosen and yet questions and raises issues about that situation. So what does one do? What does a rabbi do? Now, the next criteria for this would be that when the rabbis had responded to these kinds of crises, the rabbis had to address the issue. Whether it's on a national level of crisis or an individual level, the rabbi has the obligation of somehow putting this into a perspective, into a framework, in order for people to go on. In that context, the rabbi's job is A, as a consoler, he must be a menachem, B, the rabbi has to also go beyond that and try to proactively make a claim, make the statement that the covenant still is in effect. That even though we've suffered so massively, the covenant has not been broken. Of course, at the Hurban Bayi multiples of Jews had thought that the covenant is over. There's no longer any way that we can continue as Jews, and many of these became Christians. At that period of time, Christianity was flourishing. Jews for Jesus in that period of time was invoked, was in effect, and Many Jews do not know how to respond to this second Horban Beit HaMikdash. Very difficult situation. And the rabbis have to console, but also have to inspire to continue to lead lives of Jews. Why is it so? Why should a Jew believe that? We pointed out last night that the Navi Amos, who was a witness and victim of the very first Horban, and therefore his words are very instructive, and he, Amos, was the one who had seen this first coming disaster as being so overwhelming, what are Jews going to do? He ends his book of Amos with words of consolation, words of hope. God's eternal promise that no matter what, even after you experience this massive destruction, still know what's going to happen? God is Rishish Shavut Ami. I will redeem, I will bring back those from captivity. I will raise up the frail sukkah of David Anoferet. Interesting is that in that context, Hashem does not use the word Ben Hamikdash that could be rebuilt. No, it's not the issue. The frail sukkah of David, as frail as it may be, still know what will happen. It'll be raised up. Why David? Melech Mashiach, symbol of the Mashiach. So Amos ends his book on a very positive note of Sherit Pereta. There's always going to be a saving remnant for the Jewish people. Always hope. The covenant is and will always be invoked. One dare not believe 
that God has broken his covenant. Many Jews did. Similarly, one could go to the opposite end of the spectrum and look at the Holocaust. How does a Jew react to the Holocaust? Post-World War II, certainly confusion. Think of it in terms of a personal crisis or tragedy. God forbid a parent passes away, a child passes away, very difficult situation. Your initial reaction is one of confusion. How do I go on? How do I gather the strength, the emotional energy to take the next step forward? Often enough, a statement by the rabbi or the rabbis is what enables the person to gather his own internal strength in order to face that crisis, that tragedy, and go on. Rabbi has to be a comforter. Rabbi has to be an inspirer. Rabbi has to be the person to provide the framework out of which one can go on. These are different stages or levels of Avelut. During the first period of Shiva, of course, when confusion is reigning, one does not know what to say or what to do, the rabbi has to be a comforter. But after that stage passes, the other 30 days, at that point something else is going on. Now the person has a need to, quote unquote, rationalize the event. The event has to make sense in some context or other that that tragedy took place, either individually or collectively, fits into a rational kind of a framework. Beyond the words of the Nevi'im, which of course serve as a source of comfort and inspiration and framework and the promise that the covenant shall never be broken, it's an eternal covenant, the rabbis of the Talmud and Midrash faced another crisis. Here they faced the crisis of Horban Bayit Sheni, as well as the Hadriatic persecutions. We had seen that these two crises were numbers. Remember, again, you had the ten northern tribes exiled, was one in 722. 586 was Horban Bayit Sheni, to which Nevi'im had discussed. Amos spoke to the crisis of 722. Yirmiyahu spoke to the crisis of 586. He wrote the book of Echa. And we just read Echa. One has to read it very carefully, not now, not on topic right now. How does Yirmiyahu respond to this crisis beyond the words of Amos? Amos only three pesukim. Yirmiyahu is extensive in writing Echa in trying to make sense of this. When he makes the statement, Tavashta velo hamalta, is that providing comfort at all? What is he saying when he says, Tavashta velo hamalta? When he says, Bishlu nashim Look, O oh God, what you have done. When women, compassionate women, cook their children, Bishlu yadehen, mi Look, O oh God, what have you done? To whom are you laughing at and saying at that point? At that point, very important question to pursue. How is he providing any kind of comfort slash inspiration slash framework? in order for us to understand that event took place in 586. He's saying it's not our fault. We didn't do it. God, you did it. The power of Yirmiyahu and Echa is unpowered in all of Tanakh. To lay the responsibility, not at my doorstep, but at God's doorstep. You did it. Now we may have sinned. We may have sinned. But you had to have compassion. Part of you guys are supposed to have compassion. You didn't forgive us. Why don't you forgive us? In one chapter, particularly in the third chapter, when he expressed these feelings, the responsibility for the Hurban is not ours. A person who 
experiences such a tragedy needs to know that it's not his or her fault. And yet, of course, the dialectic of Yirmiyahu is not only exclusively that, because what else did he say? The first chapter lays the responsibility for the Horban at whose doorstep? Ours. The city had become a prostitute, a den of iniquity, blood, innocent blood shed. Where was that beautiful city that was righteous and now it's evil? Yes, we must take responsibility as well. He begins his attempt at comforting by making the point that you have to take responsibility for what you've done. Then he will directly go to the next step and say, no, it's not our responsibility. And then finally he'll say what? God doesn't decree these things. It's not God. Because what's the problem? You may think that God is so angry at you that there's no hope for you any longer. He says, no, no, God doesn't determine these things. You determine it. You're responsible. So he as an Avi has the obligation of comforting, inspiring, and placing it into some kind of theological framework in order for it to make sense. So too, in the next Hurban, again, 722 was Amos, 586 was Yimiyahu, trying to make sense of these destructions. Then we had a nice 500 year period of time, and all of a sudden you have the Hurban in 70 after the coming by the Romans. Ahmed Mahmoud had to respond to this. And the next Hurban after that, which we'll see in a moment, is the Hurban of the Hadrianic persecutions. And again, we define Hurban as a national calamity, as a national tragedy, by the criteria of massive death and destruction, number one. Number two, geographic dislocation, which is true in all of these cases. Number three, by a change in Jewish self-perception, I'm no longer the chosen person. And number four, by the rabbis finding a need to respond to the common popular sense. What's going on? How do I understand this? Emotionally, psychologically, and theologically. God Has God really abandoned us? Is there any hope for the future? And the rabbis, interestingly enough, one should get to this, but we won't today, after the comedy. 722 is number one, first mass of destruction of the ten northern tribes. 586, this is basic knowledge of worship all over, so I'll repeat it again and again and again. So I want everybody to know this. And if you get, don't get it by next year, you have to write it ten times. Start with, God willing, my shelf will come up the road. 722 before the common era is the first, the ten northern tribes. 586 is Hurban Bayi Dishon. 70 to the common era is Hurban Bayi Cheni. 132 to 135 is the Hadrianic persecutions, the Bar revolt, which is a horrifying event for the Jewish people. And remember that at that period of time, as mentioned last night, at that point Judea was no longer called Judea, but rather called Palestine, Palestine which stood for 2,000 years, which is horrifying. Jerusalem's name was changed. And Jews were forbidden from entering to Jerusalem. So you have all of the criteria. I'm not saying that it did. There are those who say Hurban Betad happened on Shabbat, but I'm not saying that. Then you have the next structure which you want to talk about is the the uh, Yerushalayim 1492. That did happen on Shabbat. Of course, that's well known. The decree was made March 31st, and and then on Shabbat they had to leave. Jerusalem 1492. That's Jerusalem. And then you had Yisro which is Chamaniki pogroms, 1648. Yisro pogroms, which again, 1648, Chamaniki pogroms, where 300,000 Jews were slaughtered over a period of time. It was a horrible, mass dislocation. So in all of these, you have geographic dislocation, you have Jewish self-perception change, you have the rabbinic response to all of this. One of his responses in comforting, inspiring, and placed in a theological context is that Now, I'm not saying that's theology, that's comfort. 
There are different ways that you, as you go through the mourning process, different statements. And one has to be very careful as a rabbi that you don't take theology for comfort and vice versa. There are many things that I might say to a parent, God forbid, who loses a child that are comforting, but I wouldn't want to say it's theology. And rabbis have to wear those, all those hats. And sometimes I think we do suffer from those rabbis who do use theology for comfort. Try to explain why this happened is a theological question, metaphysical question. But to say that God wanted your child because he's an Ishmael Orah, that's comforting, but I don't think that's theology. So there's a very careful line that has to be drawn between all of these categories. I'm not checking. Right. It's a very important, right, very important issue. The uh, issue of crusades is one that I thought about. There were three crusades, fourth crusades. First was 1096 after the Common Era. And number one, didn't affect mass of Jews. There were about three to 5,000 Jews who were killed in, in each of these crusades. I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of Jews. Number two, the Jews, so, geographically, correct. And also, there wasn't a different self-perception of Jews. In fact, the Jews are the opposite. We mentioned last night, much of the crusades, is that Jews saw the crusades as perfect proof that I'm the chosen people and that you are not chosen people. Because God would not want you to do that. The way that you went ahead, a mass of people storming a ghetto, where, you know, again, three, four thousand people in those days was a lot of people, not along the hundred thousand numbers that we're talking about. But the Jews said, this is what it means to be God's chosen. So they didn't see themselves as different because of that. Because they're persecuted. Because they're persecuted and both. 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 Yeah, because of Jews. And of course, Akadai Tzach served as a model. It's okay for my child to be killed by a Jew protecting his child or by a Christian even, because that's what Hashem wants, somehow. And the rabbi said to put that into a comforting, inspirational, theological framework. So I don't see it as massive, although, of course, it was a significant period of Jewish history. So again, is it comfort, inspiration, or theology? It's the first question. You say it's theological, you say it's theology, you have a serious problem, because why am I suffering for my father's sins? I'm always suffering for myself, not for God, not for my father, or grandfather, or grandfather, right? So I would put it theology, but I would put it as comforting, in that they had transgressed, it's not my responsibility. I can't deal with this. Why are you you're blaming me and I'm innocent of all sin? Is what he says in that statement. But so it's innocent of all sin. It wasn't He's not speaking the, theologically or historically, speaking emotionally, psychologically comforting. Do I tell that parent denying what happened in that chapter? In that chapter. Right. Do I tell a parent you you your parent passed away because they sinned? And that your child died because he must have said something, said something bad on his teacher? Do I say that? No, don't say that. Whether it's true or not true, I don't say it. If it's true, I don't say it. Right. Or do I say, or putting this, or putting this in a much more contemporary context, do I say that the reason that the Versailles Palace in Jerusalem crashed down, where how many people killed? 200 people killed because they had mixed dancing? 26 people were killed because they had mixed dancing and 200 were injured. Do I say that? And Rabbi David, the rabbi performed the wedding, said that. The rabbi performed the wedding said that. So he, he said it outright. So wait, so the question over here is one second. So he wedding said that. Rabbi David Levy, I think it was his name. I think he was the only one. I'm not saying he wasn't was not condemned. I'm, okay, I'm saying he saw fit. How about the bus well, ten years ago that was that was shot up by Palestinians and said because that kibbutz or that place is not who said this? The person in the Knesset. What was his name? Peretz or something? No, he shouldn't be told. He should be mentioning his name. That kind of Bad theology, it's when rabbis do bad theology, I think it's bad theology, it should be condemned. That because those kids are not Shemesh Shabbat, therefore they were 
killed in that bus attack. This is 10, 12 years ago. Sorry? Whatever it was, yeah. Yeah, whatever the case was. So he said that, that what was it? Was it? Was it, was it I think it was a parents. But in any case, so my point is that that's bad theology. Of course, no, it's just... <laughs> These teachers, they all alike. <laughs> One interesting point over here that, of course, supports that point is that on Perek Tedvab of Yirmiyahu, Pasuk Dalit, God describes the incredible destruction that's going to take place. Why? On Tatim, I will make this people to be a curse for all people. Biglal Menasheh. Because of what Menasheh, Bechesh Melech Yudah did. When did Menasheh live? 690 to 640. 55 years. 690 to 640 is when Menasheh ruled and paganized the whole city. Melachim Bet, chapter 22, 23 describes all of that. At number one. And on number two, Yemiah is now 586. So it's clear, Yemiah is saying over here that this all happened because of Menasheh, which is 100 years later. I want to know any part of this. So he's not trying to be, I think, historically accurate in that context, nor I think in that context he's trying to be theologically precise either. I agree with that statement. And Emily has the burden to try to explain this theologically at another occasion. Good. On the other hand, if you want to look at, for example, a great statement of, of theology, one that becomes one of the most celebrated statements, and I want to go into our sources in a minute right now, one of the most celebrated statements in all of Jewish thought, which people are not aware of this, is that this is the way Maimonides, the Ramam, clues Moreh Nebuchim, which makes it good theology. The Ramam quotes in that context not comforting statements, not inspirational statements, but rather good theology. Moreh Nebuchim, part 3, chapter 54, before, he quotes this pasuk from Yirmiyahu, which we read today in the Haftarah as well. Chapter 29, 20, verse 22. Ayat let not the wise men, what are God's values? What does Hashem really want from us? This is theology. A man should not praise himself because of great wisdom. Does God want great wisdom? Does God want me to sit in my room all day long and read books? And I become a, a great, wise person? No. Does God want great strength? I tell you, does God want great strength and, and work out all day in the gym? No. I tell you, and does God want great wealth? Should a man glory in his wealth? No. This is what a person should praise, take glory in. They should be wise and know me. Kenny Adonai, I am God. This is what I want. I want Hesed, I want kindness, I want justice, I want righteousness. That's theology. Now, the question that can be raised in which consciousness want, does God want this? Because I want to do it because God wants me to do it. So here he's saying the theological motivation of my Hesed is not really solely humanitarian concerns and compassion. It's rather out of a theological perspective that it comes. Because God says, this is what I have to Know me. Come to be wise about me, because this is what I want. This is what I do, so you should do. We do this because this is what God does. Because God does it, therefore I do this. So that's a good theological statement. Okay, let's go on to our rabbinic sources for now. Right. Your motivating factor is not because you want to do it, because God said you should do it. The ultimate base of morality and ethics is divine, not human. It's a heteronomous system that we believe it to be. It's what I phrased somewhat uh, a couple of weeks ago in a class when we were at university and we had this issue about giving blood. Half the school gave blood because it's a mitzvah. Half of the school said, I'm not going to give I don't care if it's a mitzvah, I'm doing it because it's humanitarian. What's the nafka mina? It's not a mitzvah, I don't have to give it. I don't, don't get confused the issue. I don't know, whatever it is it is. So what I'm saying is, Rabbi Hussein gave an entire shiur. I spoke about this issue that you're doing this because it's a mitzvah, because I don't care what it's a mitzvah, because it's a mitzvah, you give blood, or am I doing it because 
I want to do it. Let's look at Manapa Baba Tara with Jews' permission. Okay. And here we have a situation where we are now over here at Horban Bayecheni. We are now seventh day after the common era. What was the response of some people when this took place? Tanur Abanan, the rabbis taught. We're in Bababatra Daf Sabahamud Bet. Let's try to find out what one school of rabbis were doing. The rabbis taught. Everybody with me on this? Sharab Habayit. When the Beit HaMikdash second was destroyed. What year? Naomi, what year? 70th, 70th of the common era. Right. Right. The second temple was destroyed. Rabu Perushim Israel. Now, always when you look at a Talmudical project statement, you want to pay very careful attention to the words that are used. What's an interesting word over here? Rabu, many. There were many of who? Perushin. What does the word Perushin mean? Separatists. Right. Of course, from that word came one of the most pejorative words in the English language in the Christian context, the Pharisees. That, to this very day, is a term of condemnation. A Christian who wants to make fun of the Jews call them Pharisees, which means you only care about ritual law, you don't really care about human beings, you're a Pharisee. It's a horrible term that is still used this very day. But Perushim meant those who were separatists. There were many, many separatists in that time period. What did they do? What was their response to the Hurban? They said, We are not going to eat meat. Now, without looking below, why are you not eating meat at this point in time? Now, of course, you know that a mourner should not eat meat, right, at one period of time. Any other reasons? Could you think of any other reason why they're saying we shouldn't eat meat? No korbanot. Interesting point. First of all, they said, we're not going to drink any wine. Why not? Because they would, wine would bring happiness and joy. And furthermore, what was destroyed? What's not happening now? No nesukhir on the mezbeah. So we can't do it. Now, can anybody go a step further? Take their logic a step further. Do you want to take a step further? What should we say now? What is their model? They, now, this is a very important, incredibly brilliant point. You ready for this? Good. Okay, don't dash. How do they now view what's happening now? They have created a new theological framework. They're saying that we are now going to live life through what theological framework? One of destruction as opposed to one of redemption. What do you mean by that? The theological model of the Jewish people has always been a theology of redemption. What's the primary event in Jewish history? You see, I'm Mitzrayim. Right, on one end. On the other end, it's Mashiach coming. So I have to always look at my Horbanot and my destructions, not through a theology of destruction, but rather through a theology of redemption. They've changed the model. They've changed the framework. They're saying now that what's going to be now the determinative factor of how I conduct myself? Theology of destruction. Now, where will that lead to us? No Jewish people. This is the Perushim. It's an incredible shift in rabbinic self-perception at that point in time. That because I'm experiencing this, this destruction, this horban, now whatever I'm going to do 
is going to be determined by that lens that I'm looking through right now, that framework that I'm looking through right now. Because there's no more basak, there's no more korbanot, what you had mentioned, I can't eat meat. I cannot drink wine any longer. Why? Because there's no more yain amazbeah. Now I'm going to go further with this. They can go further with this. No more singing. How about, one second, can I eat fruit? One minute, how about fruit? Can I eat fruit? There's no more bikurim. Go further, so probably want to go with this. They've changed the, the the theology of life, which has always been the Jewish point of view. Yitzhak Mitzrayim has now become something very different. It's become now a theology of Horban. Let's see how the rabbis reacted to this. These are the Pirushim. These are separatists. Rabbi Yashua ben Hanina, one of the greatest of the Talmudic authorities of the Tanaim, who was two generations before Rabbi Akiva. We're going to come to Rabbi Akiva in a moment and contrast how all this comes about. Rabbi ben Hanina was an extraordinary personality, of course, as we know. Very independent as a thinker. What famous Kibbanan in Masechah Berachot does Rabbi Yashua ben Hanina bring to mind? When he calculated the calendar differently than Rabbi he had to come on Yom Kippur with his staff and everything else, though he said, I'm different, Yom Kippur for me. You can't. You must be part of the Jewish people. You must now, therefore, come. Okay, let's be sure now. Amalahim. Now, Now, what's the what word is critical over here? As Pirushim was critical on, but what word is critical over here? Banai, my children. Right, he's inclusive. My children. Mipnema. Why? I atem ochlim basar. atem shotin yain. So they answered him. Now he's the stage of the generation. They answered him. Amrullah. That's called a rhetorical question. Rhetorical question. How can we eat meat, basad, from which you would offer on the Mizbeach? It's nullified. No longer is there any basad on the Mizbeach. We're going to drink wine. That they used to pour libations on the Mizbeach and now no longer? So he's now faced with a new theological framework. Are their arguments good? That's destroyed, therefore we can't Well, they're not saying that. Now wait, look, check. Think of the emotional mood that's created over here. Are they acting rationally and theologically or emotionally? Emotionally. Okay, it's emotionally, as far as we know. So you're answering, you're answering them rationally. Is he going to answer them rationally? How's he going to We have to see how he's going to play this out. Right? Charles, sorry. The Pirushim actually, as opposed to Sidukim, the Siim. The Siim, of course, just to give you other responses, the Siim left the Jewish people and went to a desert community. The Siims. Sorry. Physically left. Right. And you had the Sidukim, who really, they had been Amidash people. They said, oh, we're, we're dead. We're destroyed. We're, it's over for us. And they were over for them after Chabad Ben Amidash. They were so associated with the Keunan, with the Ben Amidash. The Pirushim were one of the groups. The other groups as well. There were multiple of sects trying to respond to this. Pirushim was the rabbinic normative one. But it had to be shaped and carved in order to make sense. Now, going back to Charles's point, when you visit that family, that person, first step is empathizing, understanding. Communicate to them concern. How does he do that? With the word banai. Banai, my children. He's a sage, you're my children. Just banai. Now, let's see, let's see what he seems to be saying over here. Why not eat him? Why not drinking? Now he says to them, they had what I would call 
a valid emotional response which was not drawn out to its full implications. It's a valid response. I can't eat meat. I can't drink wine because of what took place. It, it is. I think it's it. that's destroyed. I can't do it. Yet he has to now draw out the implications. Banai, my children. Im can. If so, he's drawing out implications. Lehem lonochal. We can't eat bread either. Shkevar betlu minachot. They've already nullified the Qurban the Minhalim Hapanim. If Shabaferot, how about they said, can we eat fruits? No, Perolonochal. Why? Shkabatulbikurim. So then they said, okay, Bikurim are only from Shabaminim, it's only certain fruits. If Shabatahinim, they answered him. So we'll eat other fruits. They're staunch, they're strong, we cannot function as normal. They are saying to him, it can't be business as usual, they are saying to him. We'll eat other fruits. Then he says, We can't drink water. Why not? We no longer have water. So the first stage or level of response was drawing out the logic of their position, and they kept quiet. They're confused. So what do we do? So he continues, What does the word mean? Come close. Is it geographic? Come back, I think it's better. Geograph is it physical or psychological? I think it's both. I think that when you say please come, you don't only mean physically, bo come, it means draw in come with me. I need you now. Bo come with me. And I'll tell you. Come with me. Doesn't mean walk with me. He means join me. Join me now. I'll tell you. Now, who used the word Yevshad above? They did. He's using their same terminology. To not mourn at all is impossible. He's joining them in their statement, but really he's telling them, join me as I try to make sense of all this. To not mourn at all is not what I'm saying, he says to them. Yevshad, it's impossible. You said it's Yevshad, we can't... How can we eat meat? Yevshad can't eat meat. He says, you're right. To not mourn at all. He very slowly and almost seamlessly uses their categories and shifts from the category of specifics of not eating meat and not drinking water, not eating any or drinking water to a general statement saying, I'm with you. You're with me. To not mourn at all. I'm not saying not to mourn at all. To not mourn at all. Eevshad. We cannot do that. He agrees. So we agree then. They and he agree, Eevshad. Shkevar nigzerah gezerah. Because the decree has already been made, and we're in the throes of this crisis, we have to mourn. However, he says, and here's the critical variable, but to overly mourn, it's impossible. You are overly mourning over here. Why not? Because you're wrong? Not because you're wrong. You're really right. Rather, she'en gozrin He's saying to them that you are right about your response. The Ben Dash destroyed it's an overwhelming tragedy that one cannot put any kind of estimation on. Overwhelming. He's agreeing with them. And yet, to cry, one has to cry. To overly cry, one should overly cry. Look what's happened. The death and destruction was rampant and overwhelming. 
Yet, he's telling them to reach out to whom in tragedy? To others. He's telling them, this is operating on a number of, I think, psychological levels. He's telling them to reach out, do something. He's telling them over here that I want you to reach out. God forbid. It's a very difficult uh, statement to make. But if one experiences this horrifying tragedy of losing a child, and again, those parents, nothing more overwhelming. What brings you back? What emotional force brings you back to the real world and asks of you to function? Your other children. Exactly. Your other children. My children need me is of equal force to mourning for a child that one has lost. What could one say? My children need me. But it's true also if one loses a parent. And all people that lose parents, of course, react differently. And depending on the circumstances, whatever it means. You could have a parent who's 98 years old and was in great health and I was in your person. That could be a devastating, world-shattering event for you. And now what you may choose to do now is what? You may choose this point now to look through a new framework. My old framework was, I'm happy, everything's great, everything's wonderful. Now I have a new framework. Everything I do is now going to be seen negatively. I no longer can laugh. I no longer can be happy. I no longer can have relations with my wife. I can do anything. It's a new framework because I lost my pick. It could be anything. You're about to respond individually to that overwhelmingly shattering event. And you may create a new mode out of which to look at the world. But then what's going to bring you back? Somebody else needs me. If somebody else needs you, your spouse, your children, the emotional appeal and power of that in, the, in effect is what's going to help you bring you back. What's saying over here? He's saying to them over there. They, the Jewish people, cannot survive with your theological framework. It's correct, it's right, cry endlessly. But the Jewish people cannot survive. They need you. One second, they need you. She angles a gizera. You cannot do a gizera, which most of you cannot say. The Jewish people cannot survive your new theological framework out of which you are now interpreting all your reality. They can't survive that. They need you to reach out to them. And therefore, he tells them over here, Dikhtiv, he has a pasuk for this, and of course the pasuk only adds power to his statement. When you have a pasuk, you are now reverting to authority. So now he's saying over here, I don't want you to determine what should be our response. Rather, I want to invoke my authority. Now he's calling pasuk amal achi perek gimel. Bimera atem ne'arim. Well, he says over here, let's find the exact pasuk. Pasuk 9. Bimera atem now, what does this mean? Here, this is Malachi is the last of the Nevi'im. Last of the Nevi'im, correct? Correct. When did he prophesy? Naomi? 450 before the common era, it's okay. 450 before the common era, the last of the post-exilic prophets. The last Navi has a certain power because he's the last of the prophetic personalities. And here Hashem says, you are suffering under a curse that you go on defrauding me, the whole nation of you. So he's saying over here, that in that context, where the Jewish people are condemned by Kadosh Baruch by Hashem himself, you are here. Now you are, you are suffering under curse. You are now suffering, and yet you're still doing the wrong place. So he goes on and says, and you, have, you've been, and you, and you are still defrauding me. You are suffering under curse, and you go on defrauding me, the whole nation of you. So now, how does that help me? What does that Pasuk tell me? Why is he bringing this pasuk over here? Because 
Malachi, as the last Navi, speaks about what? Ultimate redemption and hope. You should all be aware, the very last line that God had ever officially spoken to his people is what? I will send you, not Elijah the prophet, before Mashiach comes. So Malachi, in the midst of his condemnation of the Jewish people, ends up saying what? Mashiach. So he's telling them there is hope and survival beyond the destruction. So get back the original theology or framework of redemption. Because eventually, God's promise is that there will be redemption. So he says to them, in the midst of this context, it's a gizera, we are bad, we take responsibility, but, the but is, the end of this, God's awesome day of redemption, this will be Ilya Navi. So what should we do? Steps have to be taken. You're painting your house. You're whitewashing your house. What do you do? To this very day we do this. Leave a little corner unpainted. I want you to do this. Painting your house, leave a little tiny corner painted as a zechel al-hurban. So he's behaviorally, he's not only operating psychologically, emotionally, or theologically, he's now using behavioral modification. They want to not eat meat because they have to do something. We don't, we have to do something, he's saying to them. Do something. So what's he saying to them? Yes, do something. Paint your house and leave a little corner unpainted. Doesn't say don't paint your house at all. Look on a page. Although he acknowledged it, he said at the very beginning, you're right, I agree with you. But then he slowly moves them from that extreme perushi type of outlet, which is self-destructive, as you'll see in a minute, to another outlet. The apostles of the Nephites weren't just people, they were people who had the power of institutionalized. Let her finish, please, let her finish, please. Sorry, this is my wife. That, and my impression is that they could institutionalize that. We could just not be eating meat anymore. Charles, yes. Let me finish because we're getting a little bit late. Now they Talmudically ask an interesting question. How much should I leave unpainted? Typical Talmudic response. One and a half foot by one and a half feet. Where should I put this? So they've given them a plethora of details to almost remove their intense emotional response. Do it this way and this way and this way. And where it is? Channeling, right. Or sublimating. That emotional, you're right, that emotional response has to be expressed. He agrees them, he acknowledges it, he validates it, does all of that, and then it comes to what? Now, but do it this way. Do it this way. Don't, I know you guys, you're gonna do a lot, you're gonna end up not bending the whole wall. No. Amal amal. Not to mourn at all, impossible. To only mourn, also impossible. Exactly, yeah, correct. Very right, very structured and with detail, right, which helps you channel that emotional energy that needs to be channeled. And how much, and where? So now how much is it relevant? And can negada peta? Do it by the, by the doorway. Now furthermore, or furthermore, not, you don't have to look yet, not a question of painting, you have to, you can have a whole great wonderful meal, and leave over a little bit. And then he goes, Mahi, what you leave over? And he puts down over here, Mahi, Amara Papa, he said, Dehar Sena, a little, a chair. You put something over here, one second, look over here. You put a, a little tray of food, fish that are fried in, in oil and in salt and flour. Leave over a little, it was one of their foods. Leave, make a whole meal. Take a little tray, a little on the side, Zechelechorban. Now, of course, we don't follow all of these. Shah doesn't, doesn't quote all of these, which is another issue. But here he does this. Furthermore, a woman's allowed to wear all of her jewelry, 
עושה שהכל אתה שדע. יהיה ומשיירת שישד leave out from her jewelry דבר מועט some kind of little bit מהי what is it? אמר רב אמר רב בת צדעה בת צדעה רשתה אותה תנפול שרגילות לסוד שם עושה שערן there's something it's like a hair piece like a little beret or something my French is a little off so don't wear a beret beret either don't wear that שנאמר I don't say that either <laughs> that women used to lasut sham, they, they place it on the hair, lasirat aram, lasirat, and then show a little bit of hair. So that's it. So don't do that. Again, we don't follow that either. But that is what he says that to do. I cannot forget your Jerusalem. What is the pasuk telling me? That you always have to remember. In your house, on your food, on your personhood. All these are issues that what I say. Now let's go again. My arosim hati, and now furthermore, even more so, I will. Says that I, when I, my joy of happiness, my, what does it mean, Arosh What is my joy of my happiness? Some communities still do it, we don't do it. They put a little ash on the head where, uh, of a hatan. To remember, you shall lie. Some still do this. Ashkenazi. Rabbi Salavechik has, correctly did it. I did a wedding and the hatan was at Washington University and he, they brought Rabbi Tversky, Rabbi Salavechik's grandson, was in Sirki Dushin, and he it was done. Placed Afar on his head, Zechala Horban. He does that still. We have students don't do that. Amarav, Afar, where should you put it? Hecham Anachle, where should you put it? Bekom Tefillin. Why Tefillin? Why in that place? Specifically that place. Why there? Obviously, Tefillin is the glory of the Jewish people, which is the reason why Syrians don't wear Tefillin Shabbat morning. We should not be one to Shabbat morning. That's your glory, that's your joy, that's your happiness. In that great place, which is joy and happiness, Hatan should then remember Horban by placing Afar Efer on there. In place of the Pe'er of the glory of the Tefillin, place the, the dirt. Furthermore, he ends the discussion by telling them, whoever mourns Jerusalem, you're mourning. He's allowing them and encouraging them to mourn. What's the ultimate? Eventually you will see the rebuilding and the joy of Jerusalem. So he's telling them, go through all these morning practices in your homes, with your meals, with what your wife's jewelry, on his wedding day, all that you do. Very intense and very heavy. We do all this. But, and eventually I tell you, you follow this and you will merit to see the happiness of Jerusalem. Now let's go one more time. He says, Similar to the Perushim. From the day when was destroyed, the law should have been that we should decree upon ourselves not to eat meat, not to drink wine. Rather, so this is now codified law, we do not make a decree that most people cannot fulfill. And now he goes a step further, right? Because Rabbi Ishmael ben Elisha was during the Hadrianic persecutions, a hundred years later. It's 132 to 135. Right? From the time that the evil empire, which is who? Which is Rome, began decreeing horrible, evil decrees against us. And do not allow us. It's Hadrianic. We just skipped over from 70 to 132 to 135. And they don't allow us. And they don't allow us to do what? To enter to the week of the sun. What is that? Good. That's the bris. Good. 
ועם נלן, and even ישוע הבן של בית יונה בן. They forbade circumcision, they forbade בית יונה הבן, all this, who should exhort us in We should even go further than that. If they're not allowing us to do ברית מילה, what should we do then? We should now decree on ourselves, Elisha ben Elisha says, שלא לישא אישה, we shouldn't have any married, לא ידמי שנה למי children. And what happens? When נמצא that all שאברהם אינו כלה, נעלם. They were self-destructing. אלא, rather, רבי ישמעאל says, הנח להם, לישראל. Leave them alone. Let the Jews have children. Why? An incredible ending, and it's mind-boggling. Why allow them to have children? That's what I wish he had said. What he says, מותר שיהיו שוגגים ואגי יהיו מזידים. What does that mean? Amazing, he's saying, he is so extreme in this reaction. He's saying, really, we shouldn't have children. Because we can't have any milah. His perspective, his framework has now changed completely during the Hadrianic persecutions. There's no more Jerusalem. There's no more Judea. It's all Palestine. We have no hope for survival. And really, we have nobody milah. We have nothing Jewish to live for. We can't say that. There's nothing Jewish. It's the equivalent of, he's saying, is that now I must raise my children as pagans. Now, if you had that choice, sorry? Good. Good point. Right. That's an interesting answer. If your choice was to raise your child as a pagan, which means it has no respect for human life, which means it has no sense of values whatsoever, which means it kills and rampages, if he's a legitimate, bona fide, good-hearted pagan, would you want to raise your child that way, is the question, or not have a child? Wait, wait, that's the question. The last question was more moving. It was, killing each other. That was during the Nazis or during the Crusades. Okay, here it makes it a little easier. Agreed. That was much more difficult. Last night's question was, the choice was to either kill your child, let him be raised as a Nazi. A Nazi comes to you. This happens. Says to you, look, I'll give you a choice. I'm killing you now. I must kill you now. But I will take your three-month-old and I'll raise it as my child as a Nazi. Would you do it? Amazingly, Albert, Albert, second, Albert Sasson remembers in 1942 when Rommel was coming to Syria, he was approached by his Christian neighbor and said, the Nazis are coming to Syria. Thank God they didn't get to Syria. Otherwise, there would be very few Syrian Jews left. Rommel was, of course, defeated in, in, the, uh, in the desert. But he was on his way to Syria. He got to Syria. His, Albert's non-Jewish next-door neighbor said, I'll raise your children. You may not have, I will take and I'll hire what you did. He said no. His mother said, he was six or seven years old. He remembers his mother saying, no, I will take them and run away. And if I die, I die, rather than let you raise my children as non-Jews. I mean, it's a scary thought to even think about. Albert mentioned that story to me a couple of uh, months ago. Now about that. So now, the issue over here. Of course it's Jewish. The people. Uh, yeah, sure Jewish. Yeah, he converted after the Holocaust. Right. But, and he knows that he's Jewish. And what did he do? He changed his theological image. His whole theological, the chief rabbi of Italy, Zolti, also converted to Christianity. He also changed his theological framework. Because if this will happen to the Jews, obviously Christians are right and we're wrong. So let's change now and we have a chance. So in massive destruction, there are shifts in theological perception. And as you mentioned last night, of course, in, that, in terms of this, the Holocaust, and this is why Pope Pius XII didn't do anything, is clear. Why? Because the Holocaust is the culmination of a good, Christian theology. We've been telling you Jews for 2,000 years, if you deny Yeshu, this is what's going to happen to you. It happened to you. So wake up and change. Good Christian theology 
lords the Holocaust. Because that's what it says. And for us, so it says about us. It said it for 2,000 years. You deny Yeshu, then you're going to be destroyed, devastated. So what do you want from me? Pope Pius XII could have answered. On the other hand, of course, Pope John XXIII, as mentioned last night, had a completely different response to all this. He said, no, that's bad theology. Good theology, you save human beings, even though they're Jews. And you back to their parents. As did Pope John XXIII. Now let's end with one more point. So Rabbi Ishmael ben Elisha, and I've always raised this question, one of the most famous personalities in Talmud is Elisha ben Abuya. I raised the question, if this Rabbi Ishmael is the son of Elisha ben Abuya, Elisha ben Abuya is known as Aher, the other, the one who tasted the mystical fruits in Masech HaGad and became a heretic, became a, worse than a heretic. I mean, her, I could deal with heresy most of the time. What I can't deal with, and this is very difficult, he also consorted with prostitutes, according to Shalmi. We deal with that also. But he became an informer against the Jews. And maybe... I didn't just say, was Jack, why did you just say that what you said? That was Jack Dweck who just said what he just, what he just said. So I can't deal with it. Yeah, right. Thank you for that insight. But when he became an informer against the Jews themselves, that might be the bottom line. When you go to the Romans, and give in your own people, it may be the point beyond which I can't imagine any of you going. All else is, I could see. Became a heretic, I understand. Of course, he had seen something that was horribly tragic, as the Gemara discusses. And of course, even his tavot of the prostitutes and all that, I could deal with that. But when you've gone to the Romans to condemn the Jews themselves and bring upon death and destruction against the Jewish people, that might be, it's a self-commentary, obviously, that might be the bottom line beyond which one can I go. Yeah, the rabbis maybe in response to this make that point. So I'm not sure. I believe it is this, this Rabbi Ishmael ben Elisha is the same is the son of Rishab ben Abuya. Although I'm not sure, it has to be further searched out. Yeah, the same for the time. Elisha ben Abuya was never Akiva. This is his son during the Hegelian persecutions. It fits chronologically, but we're not sure. It has to be studied more. And he has this view that really that to live a life as a pagan is not worth it. We should not be marrying women. We should not be having having any children. And what's going to happen? It's going to be the end of the Jewish people from itself. So he says, Ela, rather, allow the Jews to continue to marry. Allow the Jews to continue to have children. Because it's better they should do so, not being aware of the transgressions that they're engaged in, and they should not do so. They're going to do it anyway. They're going to have children anyway. Let them be accidental rather than intentional, which of course is a very, very strong, very strong concluding statement to this. So, to summarize this whole entire point of this Gemara Bhavatra, we're talking about facing, responding to crisis and tragedies, and here you had one group of Perushim who had said that we're not going to eat anything any longer. Nabi Yosha says, no, 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 you cannot not do that. We have to go in measured responses. We cannot stop eating meat and drinking wine and fruits and bread and not drinking any water. Shatsku, they were quiet. They know what to answer. Then he engages them on multiple levels, psychological and theological, by engaging them, terminology is very significant, and telling them to not mourn at all is not, is impossible, because we already have the Gizra, but also on the other hand, to mourn overly so is impossible, and we cannot do so, not because you're wrong, you're right, but it's the Gizra that people cannot stand by. And therefore I need you to now go out and comfort them, Bring the others who are not mourning at all into the old sphere of influence. And then he gave them a series of appropriate expressions of mourning as we do in Shiva. We have appropriate 
mandated Shulchan Aruch sanctioned morning practices that have to be followed, which channels the emotional energy, the necessary channeling of the emotional energy into appropriate receptacles by which the person can ultimately feel comforted and understood. And therefore, at the end, he gives us this about house, about food, about a wife's jewelry, and about a hatan. So we're not taking your issues lightly. Hatan had its marriage ceremony, the height of all joy. What do we do? Jewishly enough, it's an incredibly profound Jewish statement. I remember the Hurban. And that also means what? What's the reverse of that? Even at my most difficult, bottom line, deep in the dips kind of situation, what should I remember? Joy. Redemption. Exactly. That's the way a Jew operates. You live dialectically. You live from one pole of tragedy to the other pole of happiness in the same moment, same breath. You're building a nice new house. It's beautiful. It's great. It's painting all the house. What should I do? Leave a little corner. That's unpainted. In this great festival, wonderful meal, a little bit left over. So that's the way that a Jew has to operate in order to survive. Now the other teaching, we don't have time to go to the other one, is about hadronic persecutions as well, and it's Rabbi Akiva. And I'll just say it very quickly, because I think it's a beautiful statement to end on, especially now. Rabbi Akiva is now suffering through hadronic persecutions. Hadronic, this is from the Gibran Masechah Makot, and hadronic persecutions. It's column two. The rabbis were walking Jerusalem. This is, of course, before the death of Rabbi Akiva in 135 after the common era. Kevach they came to the, to the high mountain. They tore their clothes. Kevach Yagiyodaharabai, they came to Bet Amikdash, Hanamoriah. They saw a wolf coming out of the Kodesh Kodashim. The rabbis started crying. Who are the rabbis? Look at the paragraph before. Those rabbis. Those four rabbis. They started crying. And Rabbi Akiva started laughing. He started laughing. It's amazing when you think about this. They asked him, Why are you laughing? Why are you crying? It's an amazing response. Why are you crying? I'm no law. They said to him, What do you mean? My coach got to a book about the place that it's written. That anybody, so holy, that even if a stranger walks in, they should die. Now you have wolves going in and out of it. We shouldn't cry about this? That's why I'm laughing. It's amazing. Shnema, what does it say? We read from the Pasuk in Yeshayahu that Hashem says, I will have for me witnesses that are loyal and trustworthy. Who is that? Uriah the Kohen and Zechariah ben Yibarachiyahu. So now we raise the question. It's a brilliant stroke of Talmudic thinking. And he says to them, So what, what does Uriah have to do with Zechariah? It's all off. Why is it all off? Because Ba'alo Uriyah Biltash is shown. Uriyah was in the first Bimekdash. Zechariah was in the Hashanah. It's worth it with the other. And this is Yishayahu. So this predates, of course, destruction of both temples. So Rabbi Akiva is here now isogizing, midrashicizing into the text in order to make an extraordinary point. This is not what Yishayahu had in mind. It's not Shutosh al-Mikra. But he's reading into the text in order to make an extraordinary point. Ela, rather, Rabbi Akiva says, Lakatuv, the Torah put these two together, the text, the Shaya put these two together, the prophecy of Zechariah with the prophecy of Uriah. Why do that? Uriah, Neiman, Uriah says, because of you Jewish people, this, the Mount of Zion is going to be overplowed, overturned, and Jerusalem shall be devastated, and the Harbai shall be, the Lord shall be an altar of, of forest all around it. Right? Micha says all of this. But, that's the negative. What's the but over here? 
But in Zechariah Neemar, in Zechariah it says, what? Od yeshevu zekenim uzkenot. Zechariah chapter 8 says that there will still be elderly people, men and women, grandmas and grandpas, who are still going to, in the future, sit church of Jerusalem. So what is Anabekulah saying? Now you try to figure this out. What is Anabekulah saying? Because, because Uriah took place, <laughs> therefore of necessity, what's going to happen? Zechariah is going to happen. I'm happy, therefore. He says, until the Nebuah of Uriah, I'd be afraid. Until there was destruction, I'd be afraid that what's not going to happen? The Nebuah of Zechariah. I'm petrified. Akshav, now that I see destruction, now that I see that Kayaman Nebuah Uriah, now it's certain, I know for sure, because Yeshayahu said it 500 years ago, that the Nebuah of Zechariah is Kayemet. And therefore, the rabbi said to him, what did, he, what did he give them over here? Hope and faith in the future. Of course, supporting his theology with a brilliant Pasuk Mishayahu, as eisegized, as midrashized by Rabbi Akiva. That's what the rabbi has to do sometimes. Here he created this whole new theology that the past happens. Destruction, I see destruction? Fantastic. It's wonderful. Because now I'm going to see Nehama. We pray that we all see Nehasiyon, Rabbi Menu Amen. Yeah. Yeah.